Welcome, adventurers. Today, the rules of Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition and how they affected the storytelling of Season 4. Joel Rigetti's Speaking Stone Studio presents... Tales from the Dungeon... Hello, good people of the internet. Uh, thanks for coming here. Season 4 is over. Uh, today's the day we usually do a little discussion about the rules of Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition and how they affected the story. Before I get into it, I did want to touch on a few questions. Why am I an expert and why you should listen to me? And they have a very concise answer. I'm not an expert and... There's no real reason you should listen to me. Uh, this is just my musings on the game and how it affected my story. It is kind of a collaborative game, so I'm just attempting to share my experience and things I've thought about in the telling of these stories. But if it, what I'm saying doesn't work for you or there's people that you'd rather listen to, go, go for it. This is a game of imagination, so being an expert at imagination is hard. I could see someone saying they're an expert on the rules by having memorized them and knowing them all, but as a whole, being an expert at a game of imagination uh, in a world where there's a million experiences and a million different kinds of people seems like an expert in any way, shape, or form is hard, so... I don't consider myself an expert. I, I'm just here to share my thoughts on the game and and how it affects what I did. And maybe that resonates with you. So if you don't care about the rules of Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition, that's fine. If you're just here for the stories, I'm so thankful for that as well. So either way, go ahead and listen and enjoy my theories and ask questions if you want, message me, or go ahead and just skip it all together. There'll be more stories to come, and you don't have to listen to me talk about any sort of rules. Uh, regardless, though, so if you're here to stay, let's get into it. Episodes 49 and 50 were the first uh, story of Season 4, What Makes a Home. This story is, again, kind of a backstory of the Dwarven brothers, Colborn and Colfin, and how they got their start on adventuring. So, not a ton of rules to go over here. We see this as kind of, again, a backstory, and we see that Colborn is kind of a pre-wizard. We get a little glimpse of that with his practicing with the cantrip Mage Hand. And then we meet his brother Colfin, not too much later, who is a ranger-type character in the Dwarven military in the Barata province, specifically in the Eggles Forge area. As I imagine this story, I don't see Colborn and Colfin on, on, on the same footing. I actually see Colborn as a pre-first-level character, and then Colfin maybe as high as a second-level character, as he has experience in the military and having moved along. And this is something to think about when you run a campaign. Does everyone need to be the exact same level when they start? To me, the answer is no. And the reason that is, is as you continue along on your adventure, you're going to share experiences and in, in the, the amount of time or experience between levels, whether you're doing experience or benchmark leveling, can change. And I think that if a, a character is lower level, they are eventually going to carry uh, catch up in that process so if the story makes sense for the story there's really no reason everyone has to start at the exact same level uh 
So anyway, that's just for thought. The only other real rules thing I'm going to talk about in this episode is at some point, Colborn and Colfin go looking for uh, Colborn's missing daughter and wife. And when they do, you begin tracking. So you're looking for signs of someone's passing. Now in the game, it obviously could be applicable to signs of creatures passing, signs of, of, of pretty much anything. But so if you go to the Dungeon Master's Guide on page 244, there is a real brief section on how to track, and it gives uh, difficulty levels based on terrain and how much time has passed, modifiers, I believe, in that case, and just kind of talks about that. But it is pretty brief, and so as a dungeon master, you do have to think, is this a thing that when I say go ahead and make a tracking check, is that going to be once for for the entire day, or are you going to use that to guide how the entire tracking goes, or are you going to do multiple tracking checks over time you get this far and then another one or are you going from this terrain to that terrain and then it it changes and when those terrains change maybe you make another opportunity so i think sometimes like a single check may be not enough for for a longer kind of tracking situation but in the same right you don't want to turn it into a 15 dice roll thing and the reason for that in my opinion is if you roll a ton of dice in this game, you're guaranteed a failure or success eventually. And if that tracking mission is important or critical to the story, what are you going to do when you make a character roll eight times and then they fail twice? Like, that needs to be considered. Like, do they lose the track entirely? Are you changing the story based on that? Or is it just mean that that tracking takes longer or or whatever? So anyway, tracking and uh, challenges were in this mission. To me, I envisioned one tracking check from the campsite to where the grass grassy area that was described ends and it becomes rockier. A next tracking check occurs and it's good enough, but it's maybe not good enough to be going quickly and Colfin really slows down at this point. And then, for me, that's all they need to get to the point. So, in my vision of the story, there were two different tracking checks that took place over time. Uh, you, as the DM, need to understand how does it affect the story. If it's necessary, what happens if they fails, and and what what are you going to do if they fail? So, anyway, tracking checks, a Dungeon Master's Guide, page 244, a little bit of info. But I think it really requires a lot more thought. Okay, uh, on to the next story here. Uh, Four-episode arc here, episodes 51 through 54, Restless Spirit. This is a story of how the character Snare, which I consider a PC, and Ortaval, which I also consider a PC, met each other. So this is kind of a backstory, but this also might be like a session one or a session zero or a 0 0.5 kind of session. And when I say that, this is how two characters, player characters, met up. And these characters may have met up before meeting other people in their party, which we find this to be a story that happens just before these two meet up and meet the character Alarian. So I think what's things to think about this, these days a lot of people are trying to aim for that really big show, which shan't be named, which is a very storytelling-based campaign. 
there's also games that are just very tabletop. There are more people that enjoy rolling the dice and, and doing skills checks and whatever, and story isn't as big a part of the game. And both of those are completely fine. So when I'm speaking here, I'm going to be speaking just a little bit to that storytelling element of the game. When you think about trying to get people together for games, it's so difficult. We all struggle with when can we get the schedule of, you know, three or four or six or, you know, how many ever people in your group for their schedules to line up and to get going. I think what's a possibility or an awesome thing as a kind of a pre-meetup group, think of that option or that opportunity to have a session with just two of the characters. This is how you guys meet. I'm going to run that session with a dungeon master with just those two characters. You meet and run just a teeny little adventure that says, this is how you get together. And for a storytelling element, it gives uh, it gives history to those two characters. And it also adds this element of when you then sit down with the whole group, maybe the people, other people at the table have that excitement or that intrigue of wondering what those two already know together or where they may have come from. So... I think that's just kind of a cool storytelling element that can be added to the game here. Uh, as far as rules here, there is a very difficult lock that Snare winds up picking uh, in in one of these stories here. And if you are in the Dungeon Master's Guide, page 103, there's a little section that talks about locked doors. Uh, I haven't looked around too hard. Maybe there's more detail, but as far as I can tell, it talks about locked doors, and it basically says, pick a DC, you succeed or you fail. Uh, and then it also says, see chapter 8 for details, page 238, I'm guessing, where it just generically talks about setting difficulty challenges. Um, hard to say, but it's kind of another thing where as a dungeon master, rules are limited in some case. This lock, when I think about it, is this extremely complicated lock, and this is something where I would set, you know, and I don't think necessarily people a lot of times use locks hard, locks easy, and it's just all a DC. To me, for this one, this is a multiple stage lock pick, so that you needed to get a certain DC, let's say 13, for the first stage of that lock to be picked. Then you needed to get a 15 then you needed to get a 17. And so it's a multiple stage lock that takes a very long time. And as I'm writing it about the story, Snare keeps at it and keeps at it and is eventually able to succeed picking this lock. But again, as a dungeon master, you have that option to not just do on-off kind of DC checks, but instead progressive checks and how they might work. So in my head, I very much imagine the lockpick section of this story as a multiple stage challenge where Snare does succeed, but it does take quite a long time due to the complication of the lock. So maybe again, make that consideration of how many rolls are necessary for a success or a failure and not just hard or not hard, but uh, things occurring over multiple checks, difficulty checks. Anyway, something to think about there. One last thing I want to mention in regards to this episode was at the end, there is a bar fight roll for initiative. <laughs> anyway, I wanted to just take a moment here to say I used, I have in the past have done, done encounters and run them on paper. Uh, this time I used a virtual tabletop, which I also use in my home game. This is not a paid endorsement. It's just a, a tool I use. I think it's a great virtual tabletop. 
and something I use. It's called Shard Tabletop. Uh, they just kickstarted, uh, but they are releasing available to the public shortly. It is a really great virtual tabletop. It's the easiest one I have found. Uh, so as I was using it, I said, why not use it to run a scenario, a one in my own mind scenario to to help write the story. And so I did. And uh, I used Shard Tabletop. It was really quick. I made both of my characters, player characters, really quick. Uh, I threw Ortoval in there. In this fight, he's a level four cleric of the knowledge domain. And then I made Snare, who was a level three rogue thief. I made those characters, made tokens for him. I pulled up a bar. I, look, you're able to go in and retrieve maps. I pulled up a bar really quick, threw it in there, put Snare and Ortoval in there, and then decided what I was going to use for bad guys as far as kind of a, a thief gang. Here, if you go in the monster manual, page 342, Appendix B, there's a very generic section here, which is just human everything, a guard, a veteran, a mage, a wizard, uh, a scout, apprentice, acolytes, all kinds of different things in there. So if you start at Monster Manual, page 342, and you want generic humans, uh, they're, they're in there starting from that page. So this gang that they wind up fighting in this consisted of a thug, a scout, and three bandits. And uh, if you listen to the story, it went down how it went down, and that fight occurred. But just wanted to mention that Shard Tabletop was a great tool to use. It had making characters so much easier, and I was able to throw those things from the monster manual directly into the bar and uh, basically run a fight, record the sequence of events, and then write the story. I do want to admit here that for the first time in four seasons... I altered a role to change the outcome of a story. The very last attack on Snare, for Snare was fleeing the main villain, fleeing, 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 and he was wounded, 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 and basically had uh, very few hit points left and was fleeing. Now, the point of the story is for Snare and Ortoval to meet. Uh, because of that, as Snare makes his final disengagement and, and, and fleeing from the bad guy, the bad guy... <laughs> missed both of his last two attacks. If any one of them had hit, he would have been knocked unconscious, and he missed both of them. So here, admittedly and out loud, I admit to adjusting one roll and uh, saying that that bad guy hit to knock Snare unconscious so that Ortoval could then revive and save Snare uh, and have them meet and have the story go as I wanted. But other than that, everything in that uh, written fight description is based on... Uh, attack rolls and 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 everyone's statistics and as rolled but there you go my wife always wanted to know what would happen if i do an adjusted roll there it was the very first adjusted roll to make sure snare is knocked unconscious and ortoval and snare meet so there you go the third story in season three was dance of the marionettes that's episodes 55 through 57 there isn't a ton for me to talk about rules uh, on this. This is kind of a Dungeon Master campaign planning sort of episode. And what, what strings are you pulling, actually, as the name of the episode implies? Dance of the Marionettes. Now, that's from the perspective of a, char of a character within the story that's kind of pulling the strings. But it also applies to Dungeon Masters. How many things do you got bouncing around in the background as well? Um... 
we see a character for a second time all the way back from season one, a doppelganger. If you want to look on Monster Manual, page 82, uh, otherwise referred to as a shapeshifter sometimes. Uh, this monster is a agent of a yet unidentified uh, bad entity or what we assume to be a bad entity that is pulling the strings behind the actions of many people and what we find out is that what might seem to be normal events are actually being manipulated by uh, by somebody who has got ulterior motives in mind. So to me, this is more just if you're Dungeon Master, how do you manipulate the players? Are you manipulating the players? And what level of interaction uh, is just the characters moving along on their own and what level is maybe what begins to be the intertwinement of the player characters and the evil force that is in the world. So again, not a ton of rules there. Uh, you could say that there were any number of deception checks made uh, during this as the doppelganger moved through its uh, through its machinations to try to change the outcome and if you listen to the story the doppelganger is quite successful in directing the thoughts and ideas of players within uh the game maybe not even players other npcs but again this is just background information and dungeon master stuff here as far as the story goes not a ton of rules the last story of season four turned into quite a long one it was the story that I wrote for my natural 20-tier patron, uh, Todd, a good friend. Uh, and I, I found that as I write these stories for friends, they seem to get longer and longer, and, and they give me these prompts. And I find it quite exciting to write on someone else's idea. Here, the prompt given was, write something in the Ravenloft style. Now, I will admit, when that was given to me. I've heard Ravenloft a lot, and especially Strahd von Zarovich. Uh, these are the most famous characters and places within Ravenloft. Uh, but as I read about it, which I had to do because I, again, had only just heard, heard them bandying about in the background, I found out that they belong to this greater place called the Shadowfell. Well, what is the Shadowfell? As Dungeons & Dragons has gotten older, it has expanded. And why wouldn't it? Again, as we talked earlier, it's accumulation of so many people's imaginations that it seems like it could do nothing else. I think as Dungeons & Dragons has expanded, we've really got into this idea of multiple dimensions uh, that we, the world, whatever world our characters are in, for the most part, they start in what's called the prime material or what we would associate as with like the real world. And I take that with big air quotes because magics and dragons and giants and stuff, but they start in that base world. But there's so many other places now, uh, places where the gods live, the the actual hells being different planes, um, the Feywild with the, all these fairy creatures and dimensions where elementals come from air fire earth water uh so that's that's the expansion of dungeons and dragons and all these places now the shadow fell is one of these other dimensions and it's kind of this supposed to be like a mirror dimension of reality that is kind of dark and is sad and devoid of color and life and joy and all of these things so it is just part of this 
multi-dimensional reality that is now really part of Dungeons and Dragons and how it works. So if you have the Dungeon Master's Guide, this would be a great time to go. You could, for a brief description on the Shadowfell, you can go to page 51 on the Dungeon Master's Guide and read a little bit about it and its history. It totals, I think, even less than a whole page, but it gives you an idea of what it is. If you go to the internet, type in Shadowfell or Ravenloft or anything, you can read pages and pages and pages of writing on what this place has become. So, uh, and it is, it's very, very interesting. But the bits and pieces that I took and put into my story is, one, when I read about Ravenloft and the idea of it, the first thing that came to my mind is the idea or the theme gothic horror, kind of these monstrous realm and these sad people living in in a gray place. Uh, If you read a little bit more about it, there are these ultimate powers that kind of rule the dimensions, and they are gods, old evil gods that were were exiled to this plane. And then what they did was began to look for other things that they could bring into their world and control. And so what these gods kind of really do they trap these people or creatures who have committed great atrocities during their lifetime now the story of count strahd von zarovich is he's his stories he's the first vampire it's this tragic story of him and his love and his brother and there's murder and intrigue and all the stuff that goes into it but uh strahd becomes the first vampire but he has this connection with the shadow fell where he he gains all these powers, but he is also trapped within this realm for the crimes he's committed. So uh, I saw an opportunity to take this into a storyline that was already going on with my characters, and now one of the characters, Esmeray, has attached herself to the Shadowfell. And in a previous story, you can imagine as her desire for things drove her to basically wipe out the entire order of druids, the Kries Deon and Dare. So just thinking of that idea of atrocities committed uh, in the world, and now she, through her own ambition and ego, has probably found herself unwittingly trapped, giving herself over to the Shadowfell. So... Shadowfell is really cool. Look it up. Uh, Again, Dungeon Master's Guide, page 51. There's a lot of things. And if you're ever wondering what to do on an adventure, you can throw your characters into another dimension for one session, five sessions, ten sessions. That could be the whole point of your campaign is being lost and returning to, uh, to the real world. So... That's that. So read up on the Shadowfell. It's really cool. Uh, as you're there, there is what's uh, sanity checks. There's a chart on page 52 that has, it's called Shadowfell Despair. And basically it's like just the oppression of being in that plane may lead your character to have issues and problems. When I was given the prompt to do the story uh, from from my patron, he said, how about something like this? And it was just generically Ravenloft. And then he told me a story about his character and what had happened to him uh, given a mutation and kind of losing his mind for a bit and the actions he took to resolve that. So 
what I was excited to do was take that little story he put and make it uh, almost an Easter egg in this story. So there is one little event that occurs in the story of Vision that Esmeray has that actually is drawn from someone's specific uh, character experience. So anyway, uh, not a lot of stories this season because a lot of them were longer, uh, but there is just a little bit of my thoughts about rules, a lot about difficulty checks, and just more thoughts on dungeon mastering and and making sure the rules that you're using work for you and work for your characters. Uh, next week, we'll be back with uh, a few questions and answers about season four. Uh, then there'll be a one week break. And then I'm pretty sure we're right back up into firing up season five. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye. I did just want to take a minute at the end of the episode here to mention that Tales from the Dungeon now has a website. So if you go to www.talesfromthedungeonpodcast.com, you will find a website that has links to places to listen to the story. Uh, It's got some information about me. It has supplemental information, some character sheets, some character uh, art and a little bit more. So again, if you want to check that out uh, or just tell a friend to go over to www.talesfromthedungeonpodcast.com and find out more about the show, uh, that would be great.